Chapter Three of An Eye for an Eye by William Lequeux. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Tom Weiss. Chapter Three, An Appointment. The voice answered at last. I'll meet you beside the lake at St. James's Park, Buckingham Palace End, at twelve tomorrow. Remember that. Very well, I responded eagerly. Anything more? No, was the reply. Be careful how you get out and where you go. So long. Then, next instant, I knew by the sound that the connection had been switched off. What's the matter? asked Patterson, now beside me. Wait, and I'll tell you afterwards, I said, at the same time ringing up again. In response, I was answered by a feminine voice at the exchange who inquired what number I desired. Tell me, miss, who was just speaking to me. Kindly oblige me, as it's most important. There was silence for a few moments, then the female voice inquired, "'Are you there?' to which I responded. "'You were on a moment ago with fourteen comma nine eighty-two, the public call office at Putney.' "'How long was I on?' "'About ten minutes.' "'Have I been on to the same place before this evening?' I asked. "'No. Several numbers have been ringing you up, but you haven't replied.' "'Who were they?' "'Oh, I really can't tell you now. It's quite impossible.' I remember that the call office at Piccadilly Circus is one, and I think the one in the Minories. They were all call offices, no private persons? I'm unable to say. I've been on duty for the past four hours and have connected up thousands of numbers. Then you can't tell me anything else? I asked disappointedly. No, I'm sorry I can't, replied the girl. I was about to place the receiver on its hook when a sudden thought occurred to me, and again I addressed her. "'This matter is a most urgent one,' I said. "'Can't you just ask at the call office for a description of the man who has just been speaking?' "'There's no one there. It is merely an instrument placed in a passage leading to some offices,' was the reply. I hung up the receiver, and turning to Patterson, repeated the conversation. "'Extraordinary!' he ejaculated when I had concluded. "'We must keep that appointment. The inquiry is plain proof that murder has been committed.' and further that more than one person is in the secret. But is it not strange that this person, whoever he is, should dare to telephone in that manner? It certainly is a bold move, my companion answered, but from his conversation it is evident that the assassin promised to telephone to him, and was either disturbed in his work and compelled to escape hurriedly, or else forgot it altogether. Again it's plain that to avoid detection the unknown man went from one call office to another, always ringing up to this house and never obtaining a response until you answered. His inquiry was certainly a guarded one. And your answers were smart, too, he laughed. You were careful not to commit yourself. Do you think he'll keep the appointment? I asked eagerly. That remains to be seen, answered my friend, glancing at the bull's-eye to see if it were burning well. If he's not a blunderer, he won't. Well, let's hope he does, I said. You would arrest him, of course. I don't know, he answered doubtfully. We might learn more by keeping observation upon him for a day or two. Well, I said, we haven't yet searched the place thoroughly. Let's see what is above. My companion followed me upstairs rather reluctantly, I thought, passing the room where the mysterious tragedy had occurred and ascending to the floor above. There were four bedrooms, each well furnished, but finding that they contained nothing of a suspicious character, we continued to the top floor where there were several smaller low-ceilinged rooms opening from a narrow passage. Two of them were evidently the sleeping apartments of the servants, 
The third was filled with lumber, but the fourth, which overlooked the back premises, long and narrow, was fitted as a kind of workshop or laboratory. A curious smell greeted our nostrils as we opened the door, a smell very much like the perfume on the dead woman's handkerchief. We found a gas jet and lit it, afterwards gazing round the place with some surprise. Upon shelves around the walls were various bottles containing liquids. On the table stood two curious-looking globes of bright steel, riveted like those of a steam-boiler, and connected by a long tubular coil rolled into three consecutive spirals which ended with a kind of nozzle. From the fact that an electric battery and a lathe also stood in the room, we at once came to the conclusion that the master of that house had been engaged in some scientific investigations. From place to place we went, searching every corner for any written document or letter, until at last I found, crumpled and cast into the empty grate, an old envelope on which I read the address, Professor Douglas Dawson. At any rate, we've got the name of the occupant of this place, I said, handing my fine to the police officer. Dawson, he repeated. Dawson. I fancy I've heard that name in connection with scientific discovery. I don't know, I said. If he's a well-known man, we shall soon find out all about him at the Royal Institution. I was standing near the fireplace with the envelope still in my hand, when of a sudden I was startled by a strange scuttling noise near my feet. Good heavens, gasped Patterson, his eyes riveted on the spot. Look there! Look at that glass case! There are snakes in it! I sprang away, and, looking in the direction he indicated, saw that a glass case, standing on the ground, contained two great snakes with beautiful markings of yellow and black. Even as I looked they were coiled, with their flat heads erect, and their bead-like eyes shining like tiny stars in the shadow, their bodies half-hidden in a blanket. "'Nice, nice kind of pets to keep in a house,' observed Patterson. "'That's one of them that escaped into the garden, I expect.' "'I quite agree,' I said. This place is decidedly the reverse of cheerful. Hadn't we better report it at once? There's been a mysterious tragedy here, and immediate efforts should be made to trace the assassin. But, my dear fellow, how do you know they've been murdered, he argued. There's no marks of violence whatever. Not as far as we've been able to discover. A doctor can tell us more after the post-mortem, I responded. There were many very strange features connected with this remarkable discovery. My friend's reluctance to commence an investigation, his firm resolve not to report the discovery, the mysterious voice at the telephone, the fact that some experimental scientist had his laboratory in that house, and the revelation of the unaccountable tragedy itself were all so extraordinary that I stood utterly bewildered. Absolutely nothing remained to show who were the pair lying dead and no explanation seemed possible of that strange red light burning there so steadily and unflickering. By the appearance of the glass and the dust in the oil, the tiny lamp must have burned on incessantly for a very long time. Strange it was that there, within a few yards of one of London's great arteries of traffic, that charming woman and her companion should have been cut off swiftly and suddenly, without a hand being stretched forth to save them. In company we went downstairs, leaving the light in the laboratory still burning, and re-entered the drawing-room to take a final glance around. As I approached the prostrate body of the men I felt something beneath my foot, and glancing down saw that some coppers had evidently fallen from his pocket and were lying strewn about the carpet. 
Then, having remained a few minutes longer, we both went out by the door we had entered, locking it and taking the key. "'We must report it, Patterson,' I said. "'It certainly has some queer and very extraordinary features.' "'Yes,' he responded, adding slowly. "'Did you notice anything strange up in that top room where the chemicals and things were?' "'Yes, a good deal,' I answered. "'It isn't everyone who keeps snakes as pets.' "'I don't mean that,' he answered. "'But did you notice on the table a glass full of liquid like water?' "'Yes.' "'Well, that stuff was bubbling and boiling, without any heat beneath.' "'Perhaps the man who experiments there is a conjurer,' I suggested, smiling at his surprise at seeing liquid boil when exposed to air. "'Police officers know little of any other science save that of self-defense.' "'Now,' he said seriously, as we strode forward together in the direction of Kensington Church, "'you must go to the station and report the discovery as if made by you, you understand? Remember, the snake attracted your attention, you entered, found the man and woman lying dead, lit the gas, searched the house, then left to get assistance, and met me.' "'That's all very well,' I answered. "'But you forget that you borrowed that lamp from one of your own men, and that I called on you first. Ah, he gasped, turning slightly pale. I never thought of that. Why don't you report it yourself, I urged. For superstitious reasons, he laughed nervously. Hang superstition, I cried, adding, of course I'll report it if you like, but it would be far better for you to do so and risk this mysterious bad luck that you fear. He was silent for a moment, thinking deeply, then answered in a strange hard voice. Perhaps you're right, Irwin. I... I'm a confounded fool to be afraid. And with an effort quite apparent, he braced himself up and we entered the police station. Ascending the stairs, we were soon closeted with Octavius Boyd, inspector of the criminal investigation department attached to that division, a middle-aged, dark-bearded, pleasant-faced man in plain clothes, who, as soon as he heard our story, was immediately ready to accompany us while five minutes later the clicking of the telegraph told that news of our discovery was being transmitted to headquarters at New Scotland Yard. Patterson took down the London directory and turning it up at Upper Phillimore Place found that the occupier of the house in question was Andrew Callender. He made inquiries in the section house of the men off duty as to what was known of that house, but only one constable made a statement and it was to the effect that he had, while on duty at Kensington Road, seen a youngish lady with fair hair, whose description tallied with that of the dead woman, come out and go across to the shops on the opposite side of the road. "'Do you know anything of the servants?' inquired Patterson. "'Well, sir,' the man answered. "'One was a man, and the other a woman.' "'How do you know?' "'Because the servant of the house next door told me so. The woman was the cook, and the man did the housework. She said that the house was a most mysterious one. "'Is she there now?' my friend asked. "'No, sir. She was discharged a fortnight ago. Dishonest, I think. And you don't know where she is?' Boyd had by this time called one of his plain-clothes men, who had obtained lamps, turning the dark slides over the flame. The station sergeant had carefully ruled a line and written something in that remarkable register kept in every London police station wherein is recorded every event which transpires in the district, from a tragedy to the return of a subdivisional inspector from his rounds, or the grooming of the horses. Then, after a short conversation with one of the second-class inspectors, we all four, accompanied by a sergeant, started for Upper Phillimore Place. In order not to attract attention, we separated. 
Patterson, walking with me to the opposite side of the road, while the detectives walked together and the sergeant alone. Little did the passers-by suspect when they saw Patterson and me strolling leisurely along that we were on our way to investigate what afterwards proved to be one of the strangest and most remarkable mysteries that had ever puzzled the Metropolitan Police. End of chapter 3 Recording by Tom Weiss, Tom's Audiobooks dot com.